It's nice to have heat. If you're not there already, you can turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. You may be wondering why Hebrews? It's a message on the resurrection with Levitical flavoring. It's hard for me to get away from Leviticus. Hebrews chapter 7, the verses we're going to be focusing in on this morning are verses 20 through 25, but we find ourselves in the middle of an argument that the author of Hebrews is making, and so I'm going to back up the reading all the way back to verse 4. It's on page 1610 in the church Bible, reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. It says, now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have a commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers, although these are descended from Abraham. One, but the one whose genealogy is not traced from them had collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. And so, in, so to speak, though Abraham... Even Le- I'm sorry, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not to be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of the law also. For the one concerning, from, uh, one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from, the tribe, from, from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this, is still cle- and this is clear still if another priest arises the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not according to a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed about him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 18, for on the one hand, There is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And then the verses we'll focus in on this morning. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath. But he... With an oath, through the one who said to him, 
quoting Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much more, Jesus also has become a guarantee of a better covenant. Verse 23, and the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Verse 25, therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is God's ancient holy word. Let's ask for him for help in understanding and responding properly. Lord God Almighty, we again come before you and ask that you would give us understanding into your word and give us a heart of faith. I pray that not one would leave this room this afternoon without having Christ as their high priest. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine with me for, some, for a moment someone in your life who seems irreplaceable. Perhaps a parent, perhaps a spouse, perhaps a spiritual mentor, a preacher, someone who has discipled you, and then they die. It seems hard Impossible in some instances to replace such a person. It leaves a vacuum in your life. Well, such was the case with the mediators that the scripture gives. The priests, the representatives. It starts all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Where Adam was a kind of mediatorial king. A priest figure, a representative for humanity in the garden. And he rebelled, and with him all humanity with him as a representative. And then as Genesis chapter 5 records, and then he died. And so also then God, after raising up the tabernacle and the priesthood with the law of Moses He appointed the descendants of Aaron to serve as high priests and then the descendants of Levi to serve as priests in the tabernacle. Each of them would die. Leaving God's people wanting, longing for a forever priest. A priest that would not Give up his ghost and die forevermore. God has given us such a priest in the Lord Jesus. And this is part of the argument of the author of Hebrews in this section. He's arguing for a better covenant, a better priesthood, with better promises, a better hope, which is important. You might have thought that we were maybe... Jewish people hanging out in the book of Leviticus, but we are New Covenant believers. We do believe the book of Hebrews 
in the better covenant that God has given. And, and so the author of Hebrews is in the midst of an argument, arguing against the, the audience not to go back to the old covenant, but to believe in the promises of the new covenant, not to go back to Judaism. And, and part of his argument, he has to argue for a better priesthood. And he does so by highlighting that Jesus is not a priest in the line of Aaron. He's not a priest, a Levitical priest. But he is part of a better order, of a better priesthood, namely the order of Melchizedek. You say, who on earth is Melchizedek? His friends call him Mel. He, he's an odd figure who arises early in the Bible in the book of Genesis. And he's a priest king of Jerusalem before it was Jerusalem. And not only that, he's only mentioned one other time in the Old Testament. It's in Psalm 110 where there's this promise. As David writes Psalm 110, he's promising a future Messiah and he promises under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a future forever king and a future forever priest. And one of the qualifications to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek is you have to be a forever priest. One who lives forever. One who, dare I say, has conquered death. And this is part of the argument. We... We saw it in, in the reading in chapter 7, verse 11 of Hebrews, where it says, Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? In other words, the author is saying, If if the, the Old Testament law perfected people, if it made them complete and whole, made them ultimately acceptable before God, there would not be a need for another priesthood to arise. But indeed, another priesthood arises, and this is what he says in seven fifteen and 16, and this is still clear. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, which just pause there because sometimes every, feels like every two years you get the question, is Melchizedek Jesus in the Old Testament? He's not. He just looks like him, okay? It's the likeness of. Comparison is not the same, okay? He is in the likeness of Melchizedek. In what way? Verse 16 of Hebrews 7, who has become such not on the basis of, of a law of physical requirement. That was the basis for which priests in the Old Testament could serve as priests, was namely, you had to have the right DNA, the right genes. You had to be of the tribe of Levi. And to serve as a high priest, you had to be a direct descendant of Aaron. And so it was all based off of natural descent, physical lineage, but not the Melchizedekian priesthood, the basis, the qualifications he lays out in verse 16 were according to the power of an indestructible life. 
the qualification to serve as a priest in the order of Melchizedek was resurrection. Resurrection. And so, this morning, for the rest of our time, I want to spend some time thinking about three important implications of the resurrection of Jesus in relationship to his priesthood. First is a superior pledge. We read verse 20 already. Let me read it again. It says, And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for indeed, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him. So the, the priests of the Old Testament, they were not sworn in. There was no oath. It was, again, it was on the basis of who their parents were, their genealogy. But the Melchizedekian priesthood of which Christ fulfills, the one said to him in verse 20, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. And so much more, so much the more, also Jesus has become the guarantee or maybe even better, the guarantor of a better covenant. So again, within this argument, the author of Hebrews is arguing for a superior priesthood, a superior covenant that gives a superior hope. And the reason for that is this priesthood comes with a superior pledge. And this is a pledge. Notice the, the, the temporal nature of this pledge. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. That was part of the superiority of this priesthood is it is a forever priesthood. It is a superior pledge. It is God himself who has sworn that he will give his people a forever priest. Now we have to answer the question, what is a priest? I've given this illustration before. I'll give it again. This is, this is my physical object lesson for a prophet. Okay? As if my back is to God, I'm speaking on behalf of God. Here is the picture of a priest. My back to the people, but my face towards God. The priest served as a mediator, an intercessory, a go-between, between between God and man. That was their job. That was their function. And this priest comes with a superior pledge. These priests were, became priests without an oath, but this priest, as the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 110. Why don't you just turn back there quickly to Psalm 110. If you cut your Bible in half, you'll find yourself right in the Psalms. Psalm 110, it's on page 
begins on page 827 in the church Bible. It says, Yahweh says to my Lord. Now, again, this is interesting because this is David writing. David uses this personal possessive pronoun, my Lord. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So sit at my right hand. Clearly, this is a promise, a prophecy of a king. Verse 2, Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, have dominion in the midst of your enemies. A king with a scepter. Verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power, in the splendor of your holiness, from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youthfulness will be yours. Verse 4, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So there it is. This seemingly obscure reference to Melchizedek, a promise that the promised Messiah, the promised king, the promised Christ would also be a priest. Now, this was a a big no-no with the ancient priesthood. There was a balance of powers, much like our legislative and judicial and executive branches of our own government. There was a balance of powers in ancient Israel between the prophets, the priests, and the kings. The kings were not allowed to serve as priests. But here is God saying that he is going to consolidate the powers in one person. That the future forever king will also be a future forever priest. God himself is swearing. And notice the result of this, back to Hebrews chapter 7. The result of this in verse 22, much more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Guarantee of a better covenant. Now, the word translated guarantee, it carries the idea of a surety. One who makes certain the promise. Uh, Probably in our culture, the nearest equivalent is a cosigner on a loan. You know, maybe you have a friend who's made lots of bad financial decisions or a family member and they go to some financial institution, a bank, and they want to borrow money. And the bank looks at them and says, we ain't giving you nothing because you have proved yourself unfaithful in paying back money. But... If you get somebody else to come alongside you who has a history of paying back money to financial institutions, they will sign on the dotted line and guarantee that we will get our money back. 
with interest. A cosigner is a guarantee for financial institutions that the bank will get their money back. Or perhaps another uh, non-personal thing would be collateral on a loan. You know, you know maybe you want to make those renovations in your home and you want to borrow some money from the bank and you use your home as equity, as collateral, so that if you don't make payments on paying back that money you borrowed, they will come and seize your home. The home is a guarantee, a guarantee of payment to be made. Well, so the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is a guarantee of a better covenant. He is a surety, he is a cosign on the loan because of our unfaithfulness and our inability to pay God back because of the debt of sin that we have racked up before a holy God. Jesus steps in and says he will guarantee it. He will uphold our end of the covenant agreement. There's several examples in the scripture of a guarantee or a surety. Remember way back in the book of Genesis when Joseph was sold into slavery and he ascends to the highest office or second only to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. So he's very high in the Egyptian government. And you remember his brothers had sold him into slavery and, uh, and they, 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 they actually come to Egypt to get some food. And they don't realize that they're asking to borrow from their brother who they sold into slavery. And Joseph kind of plays some games with them, remember? He, he, he plants some, some evidence in Benjamin's bag. He plants some stolen items in his bag. And all of a sudden, Benjamin gets arrested, and he's in big trouble. And I think Joseph is testing his brothers to see if they're genuinely repentant over what they had done to him. Because remember, Benjamin was from the same mother as Joseph. And do you remember Judah out of nowhere, who up until this point in the narrative is quite a shady character, Judah steps up, and in Genesis 43, verse 8 and 9, Judah said to his father Israel, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, we as well as your little ones, and I myself will be surety for him. So, I'm sorry, I I jumped ahead in the narrative. Benjamin hasn't even come down to Egypt yet. Israel or Jacob was unwilling even to let him go. And Judah at this point says, I will be a surety for him. I will guarantee that he will come back. I myself will be a surety that you may hold me responsible for him. And if I do not bring him back to you set him and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. And that's exactly what winds up happening because, again, Joseph plants... The, the, the cup in his bag and Judah has to step forward and say basically hold me instead of him. Judah becomes a surety, a guarantee 
We see it as well in a somewhat similar way in the book of Philemon. Remember, Onesimus was a runaway slave and he gets converted and Paul writes back to his slave owner Philemon and he says to him, but if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe me even for your own self as well. Paul says to Philemon, just charge it to my account. Whatever, if he took some stuff, charge it to me. I am a surety. I am a guarantee of paying the debt that, that he owes. And so again, this is the, the same idea how Jesus becomes the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, how is he a guarantee of a better covenant? He's a guarantee because imagine, imagine if you took out that loan from the bank and the person who co-signed on that loan dies. Now you got no guarantee. You got nothing. But this Jesus, he dies and rises from the dead and ascends to the right hand of the Father and he sits as a guarantee that the promise will be good, that the debt has been paid because he is alive forevermore and able to testify, I paid for that sinner's debt. Now this is, this is a big deal. Because if you've been a Christian for very long, you know that often the Christian life you fail. You don't live as you ought to. You don't obey God as you ought to. You fail as a spouse. You fail as a friend. You fail as a father, as a mother. And you sometimes think, how can I stand before God with all my litany of sins? And then, of course, Satan himself, who one of his titles is he is the accuser of the brethren. He can point his bony finger at you, say, how can you pray? How can you Read your Bible. You're a filthy sinner. And he's not entirely wrong. But you can say, while I am a filthy sinner, I have a guarantee. I have a guarantee of acceptance before God. Because my high priest has risen from the dead and he sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for me. So you don't have to be paralyzed before God. You can approach the throne of grace 
In fact, that's part of the language of the book of Hebrews is he says we, we have a sympathetic high priest. One who has been tempted in all points as we are and yet was without sin. And the application of that is what? Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. Because you have one who can stand before you as your advocate before the Father that the price has been paid. Admission is granted. You belong. Not because of yourself, but because of this risen high priest. So you have a superior pledge Because of the resurrection, you have a superior priesthood. Notice verse 23 and 24. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. There's no term limits on Jesus' priesthood. Now notice he says the former priest, obviously referring to the priests who were the descendants of Aaron. They existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. So there had to be more priests uh, coming forth because they died just like all the rest of humanity died. And specifically the high priests before the time of Christ, the one historian, Josephus, he estimates that there were some 83 high priests from Aaron, who served as first high priest, all the way up until the time of Jesus. But it could be recorded of them, high priests, so-and-so lived so many years, and then he died. And then he died. And then he died. In fact, Aaron's funeral is somewhat recorded in Numbers 20, verse 25. It says, Take Aaron and his son Eleazar and bring them up to Mount Hor and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eleazar. And so there was this, this ceremony before all the people of Israel where Aaron was going to take off his high priestly garments, those garments that are laid out, all the uniform of it in Exodus 28, and we, we see it as well in Leviticus chapters 8 and 9. Those garments were to be taken off there to put them on his son Eleazar. And so Aaron will be gathered to his people and he will die there. So, just, so Moses did just as the Lord had commanded. They went up to Mount Hor and in the sight of all the congregation, after Moses had stripped Aaron and his garments and put them on his own son Eleazar, Aaron died there on the mountaintop. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain when all the congregation saw that Aaron had died All the house of Israel wept for Aaron for 30 days. Kind of an interesting scene, right? I mean, God specifically tells Aaron, you're going to die. 
And it's going to be public. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, I could imagine Aaron thinking like, can I have a little privacy as I'm dying here? You know, just maybe family. No, no, no. Has to be in front of all Israel. And you're going to take off your priestly garments, give them to Eleazar, and then you're going to die. And it happened. Now, I don't think it was as dramatic with all the high priests that followed Aaron. But nonetheless, they would die. And then the next one would arise. And he would die. And the next one would arise. And he would die. And this sets up the contrast in verse 24 of Hebrews 7. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Permanently. And again, this is, this is hugely important. You know, sometimes we think, you know, when a great Christian leader or teacher is getting old or is sickly and ready to die or maybe they just died, you think, you know, we start biting our fingernails. What will happen to the church? But my friend, the high priest, he lives forever. This happened in the life of Saul, you remember. Samuel, in a very real sense, functioned like a priest in King Saul's life. And you remember what happened when Samuel had died. What did Saul do? He got so frantic, he actually sought out a witch, a medium, to conjure up Samuel. He was so desperate. But friends, Jesus is alive. You can go to him now. You can talk to him now. He is alive forevermore. And this sets up a contrast here. A contrast of Jesus in his priesthood with the priesthood of old. A.W. Pink is helpful at this point. He says, quote, The death of Christ was a vastly different thing from the death of the Levitical priests. For his death did not prevent him from abiding as priest as theirs did. And he spells this out. He mentions first that Jesus died as a priest and they died from being priests. He died in his office. They died out of office. Secondly, personal death was no part of their work, right? The priest, their death was not part of their sacrificial mediatorial work their sacrifices were the animals but Jesus his death was chiefly part of his priestly activity his death was the sacrifice third when they fell under the power of death they could not extricate themselves from it but Jesus Returned to life and the service of the sanctuary. 
Jesus, the Son of God, had the power to lay down his life and to take it up again. So far from death putting an end to his priesthood, it did not interrupt the exercise of it. Christ died as a priest because he was also a sacrifice for sins. Yet through the indissolubleness of his person, his body and soul still subsisting in the person of the Son of God, he abode active in his office without any break. He is a priest forever. And his resurrection proves it. His resurrection makes him fit for the office. It is a superior priesthood. Charles Spurgeon says he died in his priesthood and for his priesthood, but never from his priesthood. By his resurrection, his manhood was fully restored to a life which dies no more. So the conclusion of this is that Jesus is a forever priest. A forever priest. Replacing the priesthood of old. The covenant, the new covenant replacing the covenant of old. And so my friends... The obvious question is this. Is Jesus your priest? Is he your go-to to get you in good with God? Who or what are you trusting in to be accepted before the holy God? This holy God who struck down some of the high priests, struck, killed them because of their offering strange fire before him. Remember that in Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu, who has an inflexible standard of righteousness and justice. Some of you young people, you may functionally regard your parents as your priests. You may think, well, I'm just going to put off that decision of following Jesus because, you know, dad's got it covered. Mom's got it covered. No, my friend, you know this just as well as they do. Mommy and daddy are sinners who will die one day. They are not the ones that make you accepted before God. Yes, in one sense, they are the ones who are bringing you the truth of God and appealing to you. But they are no fit priest. Maybe some of you are coming from a church tradition where you're leaning on a priesthood. Leaning on a priest to make you accepted before God. That priest, you can confess to him and he can prescribe you certain instructions so many Hail Marys so many Our Fathers but they cannot make you acceptable before God 
Maybe you're trusting in your own righteousness. Maybe you're trusting in your spouse. My friend, there is only one priest who stands alone as the one who can make you acceptable before God. He is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is the only forever priest. And his eternal and perpetual priesthood guarantees you eternal acceptance with God. But you must go to him. And he is a kind priest, my friend. He is a welcoming priest. You may think, well, I'm just too dirty, too sinful to go to him. Oh, no, my friend. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's built into his name. You shall call him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Oh, my friend, there is no sinner in this world who is too far gone to turn to Jesus. The Apostle Paul, who was a murderer of Christians, found grace and found Jesus to be an adequate priest. My friend, you may sit here this morning and think, well, next year, tomorrow. Oh, no, my friend, tomorrow is not guaranteed. The scripture says today is the day of salvation. Why would you delay? You don't know if you will live tomorrow. My friend, don't keep popping up excuse after excuse. Just turn to Christ this morning. Right where you're sitting. You can turn to him. You don't have to come up front here. You can turn to him now. He is an adequate, risen priest who will make you acceptable before God on the basis of his priestly ministry, his sacrifice, and his resurrection. He's a superior priest. Turn to him before it's too late. So we have a superior pledge, a superior priest, and third implication of the empty tomb in relationship to Jesus' priesthood is a superior protection. Oh, I love verse 25. If you're not familiar with verse 25, you should be. It is just pregnant with rich truth. Therefore, this is the so what. Therefore, he, that is Jesus, this eternal Melchizedekian priest, This forever priest risen from the dead. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is good. Therefore, this is the conclusion of it. The author here, his, he, you know, he's lined up all of his soldiers of arguments in a row, and now he's aiming fire. This is the conclusion of it. Therefore, he is able to save forever. He has the ability. He has the qualification. He has the fitness. He is risen from the dead. His sacrifice was adequate. He has all the equipment necessary for this job. He's able. Able to do what? You know, sometimes you have all kinds of tools 
but you don't have that tool. <laughs> and you got to go out to Home Depot and get that tool. But he, this priest, he's able. He's able to do what? He's able to save forever. Some of your translations may say save completely. Some of your translations may say save to the uttermost. And the, and the question is, is this speaking kind of qualitatively completely or is this speaking of forever? And, and really, I, I don't think it's possible to make a conclusive decision because it's both. You need to be saved completely. All of you in toto needs to be saved in order to be accepted before God. But also it is a forever salvation because it's banking upon his forever intercession. He is able to save forever. Why? How? How is he able to save forever? Notice the last part of the verse since, since, this is the causal relationship, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, it's the resurrection that guarantees the eternal priesthood, and the eternal priesthood, that was part of the function of the priest, remember? Interceding, a go-between. His intercession, which is based upon his priestly sacrifice, which he offered, but then his resurrection guarantees the ongoing intercession. Well, in what ways does Jesus intercede? And, and by the way, don't misunderstand this. It's not like God is the angry father and Jesus has to kind of step in, you know. Maybe some of you young people, you get in trouble and your parent barges in, you, you, there was something, some kind of malfeasance was taking place. Something wrong was going on. And your mom or your dad knows it and they jump into the room and they're angry. And then maybe older brother, older sister has to step in and explain the situation. Okay. They function something like a priest, like an intercessory. But, but God the Father here while he is a God of justice and wrath, he's the one who sent this priest. Remember, God so loved the world that he gave this priest. God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But how is it that Jesus intercedes? What, what, and what categories does he intercede for? Well, first, against our just condemnation. Again, we, by nature and by choice, we are rebels against the king. We are treasonous, both collectively and individually. We have committed insurrection, insubordination, rebellion against God. And through reconciliation, 
We attach ourselves to this priest, this mediator, and he always lives to make intercession for us. He can stand before the Father when we commit sin in real space, in real time, and say, paid for that. Yep, paid for that too. Paid for that. Paid for that, 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 that. And that. You need someone to stand as your intercessor. Hebrews 7, 26 and 27 says, For it is fitting for such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The once for all sacrifice. Highlighting it was adequate. It was sufficient to pay for all your sins. Jesus doesn't need to be sacrificed over and over. You can't pay for your sins. He paid for them. Romans 8.34. Paul argues for the eternality of our justified standing before God and he brings the entire trinity into the argument and he asks the question in Romans 8 34 who is he who condemns Christ Jesus is he who died rather who was raised who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us so he intercedes Against our just condemnation. But also his intercession is against anything that would hinder or compete for your eternal salvation. Not just your just condemnation, but all of it. All the requirements that are necessary to get you to heaven, he intercedes on behalf of. We get a picture of this. In Hebrews 2.18, for since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Hebrews 4.15 and 16, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. In fact, we get something of a picture of this in John chapter 17. Remember Jesus? We spent many weeks in John 17 that there's a reason why it's sometimes called Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's praying for his own. In one of his prayers, he prays in John 17, 11, I'm no longer in the world, yet they themselves are in the world. I have come to you, Holy Father, Keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one as we are one. He prays to the Father, Father, keep them. Protect them. He prays, he, he prays I pray not that you take them out of the world but that you would what? Protect them from the evil one. So part of Jesus' intercession is not only against our just condemnation and our legal standing before God to say, I paid the price, but also anything that would hinder you from persevering in the faith. He prays against it. In fact, John 17, the way he concludes this 
high priestly prayer in verse 24. I love it. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. What a beautiful prayer. The heartbeat of Jesus is that all of those own, all that he owns, all that he represents would make it to glory. And he does this through his intercessory work. Much like the high priest of old, remember, with all the regal garments. You remember what he had on the ephod, on the breastplate? The names of God's people. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So that whenever that high priest went into that holy of holies on the day of atonement, that high priest had in his heart the people whom he represented. Jesus has your name on his heart if you have him as your high priest. He's not going to give up on you. He won't abandon you. His intercessory work guarantees the eternality of your salvation, the, dare I say, security of your salvation. Charles Spurgeon says, how often we are bidden from evil by the prayers of Jesus. We do not know, my brothers and sisters, how many poisoned arrows are caught upon the shield of the Lord's intercession. The intercession of Christ, as with thousand, as with thousand hands, is always scattering benedictions. Surely our Lord's intercession is the source of an ocean of blessedness. If we but had eyes enlightened by the Holy Spirit, we would see the mountain full of horse, mountain full of horses of fire and chariots of fire round about the people of God. Who guides those horses? Who directs those chariots? Who is the captain of hosts of spirits that encompasses the camp of God? But the Prince Emmanuel who by his all-powerful intercession rules all things for us. What a beautiful thought. Jesus, a superior protection. A protection against all the onslaughts of the devil and his minions to try to drag the elect of God to hell with him. Can't do it. Because Jesus intercedes. I mean, have you ever pondered that in your own life? We know our own weaknesses, our own struggles with sin and temptation that given the right circumstance, we would run headlong into sin. But Jesus prays. And so, friend, you may be sitting here, and again, maybe you don't, you haven't yet laid hold of Jesus as your high priest, as your intercessor. And maybe there's some fear and hesitancy and trepidation because, you know, you know the fickleness of your own heart. And, and, and you know that, you know, you don't want to just 
take up Jesus like you took up that last diet plan you were on. And you're maybe afraid, well, if I trust in Jesus, I might just peter out real quick. Now, Jesus promises if you come to him, he'll keep you. He promises in John 7, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. It's not like a seven-day trial plan. You know, there's usually often marketing schemes, you know, try this for seven days, you know, and you got to give all your credit card information and, and then five months later you realize you're still signed up for that and you're paying this but haven't used it in four months. No, there's no trial plan here. You go in, you go all in, in it to the finish. For the believer, you can begin to be concerned about losing your salvation when you're standing over Jesus' dead body. But he's risen. John Flavel, the English Puritan, said, Believers in heaven may be happier in heaven than believers below on earth but they are not more safe. Believers above may be happier than believers below, but they're not more safe because both are kept by the high priestly work of our champion, Jesus. And again, my friend, if you are sitting here and you've not yet closed with Christ, you've not yet trusted in him, why will you die without Jesus? Why would you roll the dice with your eternity and hope that God accepts you on the basis of your own merits? No, my friend, don't be so foolish. Lay hold of Jesus. He will be your perfect go-between. He will guarantee your acceptance before God. But you have to come to him and lay both hands upon him. Don't have one one hand holding on to the world and one hand holding on to Jesus. Both hands on him. Trust in him with your eternity. He guarantees it. But notice it happens through him. It's only through him. Notice what our text says in 725. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. My friend, you can't come to God any other way except it. You will go to God either in judgment or acceptance. And it will depend upon who your high priest is. 
This is why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why? He's the only priest who can represent you before God. This is why the message of the apostles was clear in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given amongst men whereby we must be saved. My friend, don't despise the priest that God has appointed. It's a pro bono operation. He will represent you for free. But you try to find your own representation before this God and turn your nose up at the offer of this priest, there will be hell to pay forever. It's a free offer. It's a free offer to all because Jesus is a forever priest. Towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, there's a vivid picture of two individuals, both of them who grievously sin against the Lord. One goes by the name of Judas. And he, realizing that Jesus was headed to the cross, And he wasn't going to get what he thought he could out of the deal. He betrayed Jesus and delivered him over to the religious leaders for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus said on that Passover evening, Behold, one of you is betraying me. The Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which of them it might be who was going to do this thing. But then you know there was another individual who also grievously sinned against the Lord. Peter. Peter who boastfully and boldly declared, they all may deny you, but not me, Lord. I'm good. We're in it to the finish. Me and you, Jesus. And then Jesus, as he's on trial, evidently John is able to have some access into the inner court where that trial was taking place and Peter's there with some of the others warming his hands by the fire and a little girl sees him. Not some Roman soldier strapped with armor and a a razor-sharp sword at his side. A little girl. Hey, aren't you one of those Galileans who is following Jesus? Peter denies, and he denies, and he denies vehemently that he knew the man. And then the rooster crowed. What was the difference? Because Peter eventually does repent. He went out and wept bitterly. 
And we see that scene at the closing of the Gospel of John where Peter affirms his love for Christ. Well, Jesus tells us the difference in Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I'm your priest. I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you return, strengthen the brothers. Friend, you need a forever high priest and the resurrected and ascended Lord provides that. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that in Jesus we have this glorious high priest. Oh God, forgive us for trusting anything outside of him for our eternal salvation. May we press into him this morning in Jesus' name.